So, what happened to that man? What did the church do when they got Paul's letter to remove the man from the congregation? Based on 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses that we're not going to read, we have reason to believe that the church in Corinth was faithful in obeying what Paul told them to do. We have reason to believe that Corinth took this man who was guilty of an awful, scandalous, ongoing, most likely ongoing sin, and they removed him from the congregation. They handed him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So, and we don't know if he ever came back or not. There's one verse towards the end of 2 Corinthians, and I put this on your sheet. We, we've got, we only discussed one passage today, but I'm going to be referencing many in the teaching, so I put a handout with all of the verses there just to make it a bit simpler for each of us. But towards the end of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12, verse 21, Paul writes this, I fear that when I come again, and he, he was planning another visit, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. So in that verse, we see that the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who had the inappropriate relationship with his stepmom was most likely just one of several people in the church where that had to go through this process of being warned, told to repent, and possibly removed from the congregation. So we, we, if, if you've been here for at least four years, you remember we, we've been down this road before. We've seen this type of thing happen before in our own church family, and it is heartbreaking. Most likely... There were several situations in the church at Corinth where this was going on over a large period of time. Now, keep in mind, it wasn't all about sexual sin. I told you last week that the teaching was not a teaching primarily on sexual immorality. But Paul shared a whole list of sins. And and he he said, if, if people are guilty of idolatry, which has a very broad application in the many areas of your life, he said, remove them from the congregation. He said, if people were a reviler to remove them, what's a reviler? A reviler is someone who speaks abusively and harshly and divisively and tears the church family apart. Paul says, remove them from the congregation. He also speaks if someone is a thief or a cheat or a drunk or an addict. Remove them from the congregation. So, you know, we talk about this, this guy and we think, oh, that's such a horrible thing he did. But Paul is saying it's not just this one type of thing. There's a broad range of sins that would cause a church to warn someone and to give that person time to repent. And if they don't, there's an appropriate action to remove them from the congregation, to hand them over to Satan. Some people call it excommunication. And I think there's a place for that term. So in verse 21 that we just read, Paul says, I'm worried that when I come and get there, I'm going to have to mourn because many of the church people who ran back into sin 
haven't repented. They haven't stopped. So there were multiple situations where what we call church discipline was taking place, where they were going to have to remove someone. And Paul fears that he's going to get there and things are going to be bad. But I got good news for you. It doesn't always turn out bad. What I'm going to share for the rest of my time is the positive side of what I shared last week. And if you, want to, if, you're, if you weren't here last week and you're interested in the subject matter, we, we got the recording online. I can send you a link so you can listen to it. If you podcast on your phone, it's real easy. I can show you how to do that too. But it's a serious matter. But in 2 Corinthians 2, there's a situation where the sinner didn't stay away from the church. Where the sinner didn't continue in his sin, but he repented. He changed. And we believe that one of the purposes of this type of ministry, where we remove someone from the, for the, from the congregation, the goal of that is restoration. The goal of that is reunion and bringing them back into the church family. We, we don't want things to stay separate. So in 2 Corinthians 2, there's a situation where things turn out well. Some commentators, they think this is the man in 1 Corinthians 5. I looked into that. I don't think it is. I think it's a different situation that we don't have the details of. But let's read this story of restoration. 2 Corinthians 2, it's on your sheet. Verse 5. If anyone has caused you pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Look at the first part of verse 5. If anyone has caused pain. When there's sin in the church family, doesn't that cause the church family pain? This morning my children woke up, and one child told my other children something that wasn't true. And when I realized what was going on, I had to just take a minute and make it right. Did my one child's sin cause disappointment and frustration with everyone, with the other siblings? It did. All right. Wherever there's sin, it affects everybody. All right. There's no way around that. Sin is not just this personal thing where no one else is touched by it. We're all affected by someone else's sin. And here... In verse 5, he talks about someone who has caused pain. We get to verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. I think that word punishment is referring to the removal from the congregation. And Paul is saying that for that person, the punishment is enough. It is time for it to be over. He's served his time. If you want to use terms like that that we're familiar with in our day and age. 
Um, he's paid his debt. It's time for everything to go back the way it once was. It is time to live with this person in family life as if they had never done the thing that they did. The punishment, the removal is enough. And, and note that it says it's the punishment by the majority. Okay, removing someone from the church family is not Kyle and Joe's job. It's our job. It's not something that the leaders are to move forward on without the congregation. And that puts an incredible weight of responsibility on every church member. And note that it says majority, so probably not everyone participated. And that just causes problems. That sends confusing signals. And some of you, you know what that's like. When you've got a church and many people are saying, no, you can't do this. But some people are saying, yeah, it's okay, go for it. That causes loads of confusion. But we know in this church, it was the majority of people. They removed the person. So the punishment is enough, verse 6 says. Then verse 7, So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Church, those two verses right there are huge. We've got to be ready to welcome them back when they're ready to come back on God's terms. When they're ready to come back, able and prepared to live with the church family in a way that honors God, we don't shun them. We don't continue the punishment. We don't say, no, you're not welcome or what you did was so bad, you can never have a place here. No, we reaffirm our love for them and we bring them back. And look at verse 11. You need to do this so that you're not outwitted by Satan, for we are ignorant, not ignorant of his design. If you've got a bonfire, it's been burning a while, you've got hot coals on the bottom, right? If you stick a shovel in there and take some of those coals and throw them out to the side, how long are those coals going to stay hot by themselves? They're going to be extinguished. They're going to go away. And that's what happens when a man or woman of God is isolated from other Believers, But if those coals stay on the burning hot fire with everyone else, how much more brightly are they going to burn? And how much longer are they going to burn? And Paul is saying to them, welcome that man back into the church family. Do not shun him. Do not be harsh with him. But welcome the repentance center back into the church so that we may not be outwitted by Satan. Two other verses from Galatians 6 speak to this. It's on your sheet. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's another word for sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The... If and when we have to bring someone to the, you know, we tell you publicly that someone is in sin and we have to consider removing them and warn them. You must know that it is our goal to restore them. And if it takes a week, that's all right. If it takes 10 years, then we're going to do it 
and wait for them for 10 years. I need to tell you a story about a man named Ron. Ron was a member at Sovereign Redeemer Community Church in Wake Forest. The pastor at this church, uh, his name is Jason. Um, I've known him for about four years. We've spent some time together. Our families have been together uh, before. Jason is someone that I, mentors me to a degree. He's someone I can call when I need some wisdom from somebody. Well, a couple years back, he told me a story about a man named Ron, who was a part of the church family. And about four years ago, maybe five years ago now, the, Ron's wife comes to Pastor Jason. And says, Jason, my husband is doing some things he shouldn't be doing. And it turned out he was participating in illegal activity. So I don't know what the activity was. I've never asked. But we're just going to call it illegal activity. And law enforcement and the courts did get involved. Um, He didn't serve much time if he served any. But Ron's wife said, Jason... My husband's doing this. So the elders of the church got law enforcement involved, and and they also went to him with his wife and said, you can't do this if you're a Christian. Please come to God and change the way you're living. Ron didn't. Ron did not change. They had to remove him from the congregation. He was not permitted to participate in the ministry of the church, and they said publicly, We don't believe that Ron is a Christian. And this went on. Lasted about three years. So Ron's wife and children continued to come to the church faithfully. They were supportive of the church and and Ron continued to live with his family. Things get awkward in these situations, don't they? To complicate matters... Around the time that Ron was being removed from the congregation, the pastor's daughter and Ron's son were falling in love. They're married now. They have two kids. So there was a wedding between Ron, the church-going, sinning, removed from the congregation, Ron's son, and the pastor's daughter. They now have two kids. (laughs) Family gets involved in this stuff, right? This, this stuff's tricky. This stuff's complicated. What? No, Jay. No, I, I don't know who. I don't know what his role was in the church. I know he was an active member. That's all I know. So this is really tricky. This is really complex. Uh, back in February or March, I called Jason, and, and just a, a, a few. I actually had questions about church documents. And he said, Kyle, do you remember the story about my son-in-law's dad? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. He said, i got to tell you what happened. He said, back in November, Ron's wife came up to me. And she said, have you talked to Ron? And he said, no, why? What's going on? He, something's happening. I don't know what it is, but I love it. He's not defensive anymore. He's like helping out around the house. He's kind. He's not yelling. You know, he's not angry anymore. Something's going on with Ron. You need to call him. So Pastor Jason calls Ron. They get together. Ron is obviously different. Something is so unique. Jason barely even recognizes this man. Ron comes right out at some point in the conversation and says, Jason, 
I was at church just because that's what I was supposed to do. I was double-minded. I had my life on the side. I did one thing Monday through Saturday, you know, and that was obvious with the behavior, you know, with my legal trouble and all that stuff. He says, I wanted everyone to think I'm a Christian, but I, I, I'm almost sure that I wasn't. And I think I want to be a Christian. So they had a short talk about the gospel, and this man said, okay, I, you know, <laughs> I believe. He was welcomed back into the church. The church, the punishment by the majority was enough. And they reaffirmed their love for him. Please come back. In the middle of this process, he requested to be baptized. He had been baptized years before, but he felt like he wasn't really a Christian when that happened. So he wanted to be baptized. They said, all right. It was a Thursday afternoon, Jason told me. On Thursday, this was in January of this year. On Thursday afternoon, they said, we're going to baptize Ron on Sunday morning. By this time, he was already back at the church. Everyone knew he was back. He'd been back for a few weeks. So they go to baptize him. Well, they, Thursday, they plan to baptize him Sunday. Friday, they're looking at the weather report. Huge ice storm is coming Sunday morning. No way they're going to be able to meet and gather for that baptism. Friday night, several people from the church called every other member of the church, and they said, we are gathering Saturday night because we're not going to be able to get together Sunday morning, and we're going to do the exact same thing. We're going to have our Sunday service Saturday night, and that's just what they did. They gathered Saturday night. They had a dinner. Uh, they actually eat at this church every single week like we do. Um, they, they got together. They had their dinner. And they had their worship gathering. And Ron was baptized. And it iced up overnight. And there's no way they would have met Sunday morning. But how huge is that in the life of a congregation? Three to four years later, this man is welcomed back. This is restoration. And it is beautiful. This is the purpose of everything that I talked about last week. So... We've looked at the situation in Corinth. We've looked, tried to figure out things about how the church responded and how this man responded. We've seen the call to restore. What I want to do is quickly look at the passage that we discussed. Call that the longest sermon intro you've ever heard. Okay, here's the sermon. It'll be shorter than usual. John chapter 20, verses 19 and 21. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. You. If Jesus showed up and said that to me, I'm like, I can take some of that. I can handle that. Yes, Lord, thank you very much for peace. Now, I briefly mentioned earlier that this was Easter Sunday. This was Sunday evening. Keep in mind what kind of week all these followers of Jesus had. They had been loyal to Jesus, following him from city to city for three years. They loved him dearly. And all of a sudden, their master, the one they were calling Lord and Christ, was executed as a common criminal Friday evening. Think their plans changed a little bit? And then that morning, there were reports that Jesus' body was not in the tomb. That's a problem, right? That was a problem for a lot of people, but it turns out for them and us, it was rather good news that he rose from the dead. Jesus had appeared to some of the women who were close to him, Mary Magdalene and a couple of other people. Some of the disciples had seen the empty tomb, but none of the 12 men who had been following him so closely, none of them uh, um, had seen him yet. 
And they're in a locked door because they're afraid of the Jewish authorities. And at that time, the Jewish authorities and the law enforcement authorities were married together in a very corrupt fashion. They're scared to death. They're worried. A locked door. And Jesus says, peace be with you. He showed them his scars and he said again, they were glad. They realized, okay, this this is Jesus. They'd had a rough week. Consider Peter. Thursday night, three to four days earlier, he had denied Jesus three times that he even knew Jesus. A little servant girl questioned him, put him on the put him on the stand and questioned him. And Peter lied and said, no, I don't know this man. And he said he wouldn't do that. And he had promised that he would not do that. Imagine the shame that Peter was living with. And here Jesus says to all of them, peace be with you. Look in verse 21 at the end. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Not only was Jesus offering peace and reconciliation, but he was restoring them. He was reminding them of his good plan for them. See, he had said all kinds of stuff about them and to them. He had said, you guys are going to take my message and tell the whole world. He said, you all are going to witness to me and to the things that I have been teaching. They, like us, have regret, fears, shame, and failure. Raise your hand if you have regrets, shame, fears, or failure in life. I've never said every, every head bowed, every hand raised, but I could almost do it right now. <laughs> it's all of us, isn't it? And Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I have sent you. You know what that means for us? Is that no matter how bad we've screwed up, it doesn't cancel out God's plan for our life. That's great news, isn't it? That is great news. We aren't powerful enough to screw up God's good and sovereign plan, are we? We're not. And here, Jesus doesn't bust in and be like, you guys abandoned me. Where'd you go? Where were you when I needed you? He said, peace. He said, peace. And he says, and he he says something that he had said before. The Father has sent me and I am sending you. I've got work for you to do. And I don't care how bad you screwed it up. Everything is different now. Everything is different now is what he is telling them. We go on to verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I think about in the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, God breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve. He made their bodies, but then his very breath went into their bodies, and that was when they came alive. Here, he's breathing his breath into this locked room, and he's saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? He had told them that I'm sending you out. See, he had a job for them. And what was true of them is true of us today. 
you can't do the things that God commands you without God. St. Augustine, 1,600 years ago, he said this. He said, God, command whatever you will and give everything that you command. Command whatever you will and give whatever you command. See, St. Augustine and here John and Jesus and the whole room, they knew that they couldn't obey God without God. See, Jesus had been doing the things that he was doing because he was God in human flesh Full of the Holy Spirit. Now we're not God in human flesh. But you know what? We're in the flesh and we can be full of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knew that for this small group of disciples this night. That he had a job for them to do. And they could not do the job without God. Do you know you have a job to do? Do you realize that God wants you to bring his kingdom wherever it is that you go? Do you realize that you have a part to play in making disciples new ones and stronger ones? Do you realize that you have a ministry every single Sunday when you come here? It's not just me ministering, but we are all to minister or serve. That's what the word ministry means, or to serve one another. You can't serve your church family if God's not inside of you. Do you pray as you come on Sunday morning, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can love Dwight, so that I can love Christian, Steve, Vasti, Vanessa, Joe, Tina, whoever it might be. God, I know someone there is going to need me today. I know there's some part you want me to play. God, fill me with yourself. Fill me with the Holy Spirit so I can do what you have told me to do. And then we get to verse 23, last verse. And I I confess, and this was true at our discussion table as well. Well, let me ask it like this. Does this verse just seem out of place to you? For years, this verse seemed out of place. And it's not as fuzzy after studying it all week as it had been even just two weeks ago. What's he talking about? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Y'all remember a couple months ago, it was our second Sunday in the Ecclesia series. We looked at Matthew 16 and 18 and Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be loose or will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we just kind of all look at that and we're like, what is Jesus talking about? This is really strange. Well, verse 23 is kind of like that. Here's why. In the original Greek that the New Testament was written in, sometimes there's just, it's impossible to translate something word for word. And this is one of those occasions. This literally means, and I'll read it two or three times. Those whose sins you forgive have already been forgiven. Those whose sins you forgive have already been forgiven. Those whose sins you do not forgive have not been forgiven. Those whose sins you do not forgive have not been forgiven. All right, so what's this mean? John isn't telling us, well, let me read. God does not forgive men's sins because we decide to do so. Nor does he withhold forgiveness because we don't want them to be forgiven. But instead, we can announce forgiveness of sins. And we can also announce unforgiveness. I don't think that this verse has to do with, oh, Constance upset me, I better forgive her so that God will forgive me. 
Or Jean did this, and I don't, you know, I'm just going to stay away from her. This verse is not talking about that interpersonal forgiveness. I believe it's talking about the vertical forgiveness between us and God. And a majority of commentators say this as well. And trust me, I've read enough of them this week. I believe that what this is saying applies to restoring someone to come back into the church. I believe what this is saying is that if you see someone's life has been changed by God, if you see that they believe the gospel, then you can be the very voice of God and say to them, your sins are forgiven. It's very rarely we hear God speak audibly, isn't it? Isn't it good to have someone in the church family that knows you and loves you remind you of your forgiveness, especially if you just happen to be at your worst at that time? Now, the flip side of this verse If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That doesn't mean that you can prevent someone from having God forgive their sins. If you're up on your high horse or whatever, you say, you can't be forgiven by God. That doesn't mean God has to do what you say. Think about the man who was with his stepmom. You're removing him from the church. We go to him and we say, I'll call him Ron. Ron, I don't think you're a Christian. I don't think your sins are forgiven. I see no evidence of that in your life with all of your rebellion. I'm worried that you're on your way to hell. Would you please come to God? Would you please believe the gospel? Would you please repent and turn from your sin? And I think as God's people, there are certain occasions. This is not a normal everyday thing. (laughs) But I think there are certain occasions where we speak to someone and we say, your sins are forgiven. Or we speak to someone and we say, your sins are not forgiven. We are the body of Christ. We are a prophetic people who speak forth the word of God. Now, there's a danger in this because there's great authority that is given to us. We can't take these things lightly. and We can get this wrong. So we have to be so careful. That's why I say this is occasional. That's why I say we don't do this lightly. But there are times where God wants us to be his very voice. And just as Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, whatever will be loosed in heaven. You know, we're not making stuff up and we're not making up God's mind for him. But rather, we are full of the Holy Spirit. And we know what God's mind is. We know what his thoughts are about a certain situation. We just happen to say on earth what is already true in heaven. We happen to say on earth to someone else what is already true in heaven. I close today with a quote from a 16th century European pastor named Menno Simons. He says this. We do not want to expel any, but rather to receive. We do not want to amputate, but rather to heal. We do not want to discard, but rather to win back. We do not want to grieve, but rather to comfort. We do not want to condemn, but rather we want to save. There will come a time where everything I've taught last week and this week is going to mean a whole bunch. 
And we're going to hold on to these passages and we're going to walk through this together. And God will be honored in the midst of our obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we may persevere in faithfulness and in wisdom, God. Would you bless us? Would you guide us? Lord God, would you draw us near and teach us your ways, I pray. God, we thank you for the bread and the cup, for your body and your blood. You are awesome, God, and there is nobody like you. Amen. Amen. Next week, we will be back in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, verses 12 through 27. And next week will be the conclusion of this series that we've called Ecclesia. What is Ecclesia? Ecclesia is just the New Testament original language word for church. And so today is week nine, next week is week ten, so we've spent ten weeks looking at God's design, God's good plan for His church. It's beautiful. It is amazing, and God's love for His church is great. Awesome. So I've tried to define church, I've tried to look at church from different angles, And to present different ideas to you that I believe are important for us in moving forward in the future. Let's let's revisit last week. (laughs) Let's revisit last week. Anybody wonder what happened to that guy? Anybody wondering how the church responded to the letter that they got from Paul? If you weren't here last week... We were in one of those passages that church people don't talk about, but it's in the Bible, so we're not afraid of it. We're going to go for it, and that's what we did. Okay, God spoke to us, didn't he? But the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in the city of Corinth that's in modern-day Greece, and he addressed a, a nasty situation. There was a man in the church who called himself a brother in Christ. He was a church member. And he was having an active, ongoing, inappropriate relationship with his father's wife. Paul said, nobody who says they're a Christian can behave like this. And Paul instructed the entire church to remove this man from the church family. Paul said it in two places. He said, remove this man. And he also said, hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed. There's a whole lot there. Feel free to revisit that at the table today if need be. That's fine. Um, So they got this letter. What did they do with it? What happened to that man? Here's what we're going to do today. In a few moments, we're going to read and discuss John chapter 20, 19 through 23. In one sense, it's not connected to the situation with this man in Corinth at all. But in another sense, it's incredibly connected. The passage we're going to study in our discussions doesn't, it, it doesn't tell us what happened to the man. It doesn't tell us what happened to the church. But what it does do is it is probably, at least in my opinion, the most beautiful 
example of reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness that I can find anywhere in the Scripture. Because that man that we saw last week in the Scripture, who was guilty of sexual immorality, he was told to be removed from the congregation, it wasn't ever supposed to be a harsh thing. It's obviously incredibly difficult, but it was never supposed to be harsh. But this week, we're going to look at the goal and the purpose and the hope for those types of situations. Any healthy church will, from time to time, have to practice church discipline and excommunication. But there's a goal for it. And the ultimate goal is that God would be honored as that person is brought back into the church family, having come back to the Lord. So, with that, we enter into John chapter 20. If you're using a blue Bible, it's on page 1005. Today is all about restoration. Restoration here with Jesus and his disciples that we're about to read, and restoration with the man in Corinth and with that church. So John 20, beginning in verse 19. And I'll say this, this is Easter Sunday. This is the evening of the day that Jesus rose from the dead. On that evening, or on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of God. Let's take a few minutes, read it quietly to yourself. And when the time is right, your table leader will begin the discussion.